Good morning, Cross Point. We're starting a windsurfing team later this afternoon. If you'd like to try out, we have a lot of activities. We've never added kite surfing, but I think today might be the day. Uh, thank you for coming out on a, on a blustery day. We had a good first service, though we nearly blew away at a certain point. And just remember, uh, folks, uh, whatever difficulties come, uh, Jesus is still Lord, and we are still his church. And we will do whatever it takes to keep gathering together, Keep one another safe and healthy. Uh, continue to love our community. Circumstances change, but obedience doesn't. Let's pray together. Father, give me your grace as I uh, open your word and read it. Every time I teach, I'm, I'm taught more, Lord, than I could possibly convey to others. You, you convict me. You deal with me. Uh, I'm sure I can't know, but I would reasonably certain, Lord, that you, you refine me much more through learning these things in your word uh, than anything my teaching could do for others. Thank you that you can teach each one of us, Lord. There are some here who have just come to faith. Others may be seeking you, Lord. You've moved in their heart to look for you, to try to put their trust in you. I pray that they would today. Many others, Lord, are far along in their discipleship. They're advanced. Uh, they follow you with a full heart. Thank you that you can meet with each of us. I pray that you would do that, that you, you would find open hearts, responsive, quick attitudes that are quick to learn, quick to welcome correction, and quick to do what you tell us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If I may, if I could uh, just ask you to take a prayer request home with you. Uh, a few days ago, I received an email from one of our missionaries overseas, and this morning an email from probably the least dramatic man I've ever dealt with, but the subject line said emergency. And what has happened with both of these families, they both serve in an extremely restricted, very difficult part of the world. Um, it really is a miracle that they're able to serve there at all. And they have each just received word uh, that the government, which is not at all friendly uh, to Christ and to Christians, is changing the rules. And their best understanding is they will have to leave the country where they have served for many years and probably within the next two weeks. Uh, that creates a lot of upheaval because they've served there for a very long time. Uh, they are, their lives are, are enmeshed with the lives of national believers there. And so if you would pray for these two families, I'd rather not name them or even the country that they serve in, but it's a, it's a difficult spot. If you would just pray for our missionaries always, and particularly for these two uh, in this very restricted and difficult part of the world, uh, that God would either grant them a reprieve, that they would be given an extension to stay there, which they have been told will not happen, uh, but God can, and we've seen Him do things contrary to the government announcements before, or that He would work in the national churches and in the lives of these American missionaries to direct each their next steps. Are you familiar with Jesus' record? Undefeated. Often contested, often cursed often doubted, many times disbelieved, absolutely undefeated. Okay? Now then, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me in the Gospel of Luke. And let me begin by saying, if you look with me in Luke chapter 21 and you'll get settled there, let me begin by telling you a simple truth. Jesus cannot change the person you're pretending to be. He can only change the person you are. 
much in life, and that extends into the church, is pretending. A pastor friend of mine early on in the pandemic literally got himself in kind of a national fracas because he posted something online that was insensitive, I recognize. It said, um, I'm surprised so many of you object to wearing masks. You've been wearing them all your life. And yeah, exactly. I didn't say it. He said it. I just sat back and waited for the blowback. It took about two seconds to arrive. It was uh, extremely violent when it did arrive. But that's true. The reason there was pushback is that's the second part of that, at least, is true. Everybody's pretending. I took a test uh, in seminary. They poked and prodded at us spiritually and psychologically in every kind of way, and I was told that I am a person who fakes good. In other words, I pretend that things are better than they are. The other inclination, can you guess? to fake bad. This is the person who everything's terrible, right? Uh, Death is imminent. uh, Disaster is upon us all the time. Everybody fakes one way or the other, it seems, but Jesus can't change the person you're merely pretending to be. The essence of discipleship is to you present yourself as you actually are to Jesus. Here's the confidence of you being able to do that. He already knows. He already knows exactly who you are. You can tell him that you're not afraid, but he knows the truth. You can tell him that you intend to obey him, and he can see that perhaps you have no intention of obeying him. You can bring him your weakness, your strength, everything that you are. You can present it to him and know that he will love you at the point where you are, and he will change you into the person he wants you to be if only you will bring yourself to him fully. That's the journey. Nobody does it perfectly, but that's the next step. And when we read at the end of Luke 20 and Luke 21, as I'm about to do, you're going to see a great deal of posturing. And you're going to discover that Jesus sees reality differently than all the people around him. Look with me in Luke chapter 20, verse 45. This is from last week, but I want you to see where Luke places this short, four-verse story where he placed it um, in the place, why he placed it in the place that he did. Luke chapter 20, verse 45 says, in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. These are the experts in the Hebrew scriptures. They had an important spiritual leadership role in Israel. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus, as you've been following along, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for quite a while. Jesus has been tested, tried, and mocked by rival groups. Each of them has come and taken their shot at Jesus. They've all been unsuccessful because he actually is undefeated. And as a way of ending those challenges, once everybody literally shut up, having nothing more, daring not to ask him another question or make another comment, Jesus said, you know, look out for your teachers. Look out for the supposed experts in God's Word because they are actually the kind of people who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces. In other words, if these men had titles, they wanted other people to use them. 
They wanted to be greeted publicly and praised for their knowledge. They loved the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. That's their public life. All for show, all meant to impress. But in private, Jesus says, they are those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. In other words, when they speak to God, they don't do it to talk to God. They do it to impress other people who are standing around listening to them pray. They present themselves well in public. They like people to remember their learning, but what they're doing in private is devouring the income of the most helpless people, and they will receive, Jesus says, the greater condemnation. Then Jesus tells this story. It's just four verses. It has one simple truth. It's so dense, and it's such a heavy truth that I want to take the lesson that Jesus taught in the Gospel of Luke and then move forward with you a few decades to help you understand how Paul worked out what Jesus was teaching in the life of the first Christian churches. Luke chapter 21 says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching there by day. He's welcoming and swatting away challenges to his identity and his authority. And there are offering boxes placed strategically around the temple. As Jesus is there, he can look up and see wealthy people putting their gift in. And I don't think there's any indication here that Jesus is using any kind of special divine knowledge. It's very obvious how wealthy these people are. It's very obvious what they're doing. This is an extension of their lives that do things for show. They are giving, they are praying, they are speaking, they are doing everything that they do in order to be seen by others. This apparently includes the way they give their offering, their financial gift, their worship to God. Verse 2, he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. In the procession of the wealthy also is a widow. She puts in the smallest of coins known today because of this story as the widow's might. I looked it up. Each one of these coins was so tiny and so insignificant that it was worth 0.008% of a day's wages. Recently, somebody probably looking ahead and seeing that we were coming to this story actually sent me the gift of an actual widow's mite, one of these tiny little coins from the time of Jesus. It's so tiny, I'm never taking it out of the container it came in because I'll lose it. It's impossibly small. Even in the day of Jesus, it was an insignificant amount of money. So along with these heavy financial offerings, hitting the bottom of the offering box, causing people to ooh and awe, a, not only a widow, but a poor widow comes along with this tiny little offering and listen to what Jesus said. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, how can that be? See, this is what makes it challenging to be a disciple of Jesus. He and you will see different things in life, and he'll always be right. 
Jesus, having created all that is, having made reality, always knows what is real and true. One of the hardest things in the 21st century, and it's not going to get better, is we can scarcely agree on what's true anymore. Technology now exists called a deep fake that will make it nearly impossible, we're told, and eventually completely impossible to know if the video we're watching is that of the person who exists in the real world or just a very, very clever virtual fake. Jesus always knows the truth. And as he watches the parade of givers and he sees the wealthy give impressive amounts, he sees a widow put in hardly anything. She said, he says, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And here's why. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, when a story in the life of Jesus is this short, this dense, this is reminiscent of Jesus saying just a few verses earlier that we are to give to God what belongs to God and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. The invitation from God and His Word is to sit for a second and ponder the brevity of the story. Sometimes the shortest stories and the shortest sayings have the deepest and the most challenging truths. What Jesus says at the offering box is, the rich have not given much at all. The woman who should have been cared for by her family, some tragedy has befallen this woman because in the ancient world, your family was your security system. So she has lost her family, she has lost her husband, and she must also have no children or been estranged for them or lost them to death as well. She is the most hopeless and helpless person in Israelite society, and yet Jesus looks at her and without saying anything to her, commends her for the rest of time in God's word for her generosity, saying that she outgave everybody in the temple because she gave out of the depth of her poverty and gave all that she had to live on. Why is this story here? See, in your reading the Bible, little Bible reading tip when you read your Bible later today or tomorrow morning, ask yourself continually, why is this here and what does God want me to know and to do about it? Here, I believe, is the teaching of Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. When it comes to giving, Jesus doesn't count the money. He weighs the sacrifice. That's what makes His view and yours and mine so very different. When, G, when it comes to financial giving, because this is all about money, yes, God wants you to give of your talent and your time and your sacrifice and your work because He owns everything already, but here this is entirely about financial giving. Jesus wants you to know as His disciple, He's never counting your money. He is always weighing the amount of your sacrifice. And here's the question. Tough day to ask a question with this much wind blowing. I hope you can help hear me, and I hope you, I can hear you. If this is true, why isn't Jesus counting the money? Why isn't Jesus impressed by the amount of money that anyone can give him? He doesn't need it. Why doesn't he need it? He owns it all. 
There is literally nothing you could give to the Lord that He didn't give you first. That's in the Bible. We give to the Lord what we first receive from His hand. Everything about you, everything about me, including any financial gift that I have to offer to Him, He can't possibly be impressed by it because He gave it to me first, and He owns everything besides. That's why Jesus is not standing by the offering box being impressed by the substantial gifts of the wealthy, but that's why 2,000 years later you can read the story of an anonymous, helpless woman who apparently impressed, moved Jesus to comment and to teach him disciples to say, ignore them. They gave and they will never miss it. This woman gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had left. Now that's a hard lesson when I tell you that Jesus can't change the person you're pretending to be. When Jesus teaches about giving... The only reasonable thing for a true disciple of Jesus is to sit quietly with the Lord, open up the area of life that he's examining or that he's teaching you about, and to take the principle to heart. If Jesus is not counting the money you give, but if Jesus is always and only weighing the sacrifice of your giving, how's that going? Is your giving non-existent? Is your giving very routine? Is your giving flat as it always has been? Are you the kind of giver that moves the decimal point backward or gives a set amount and thinks nothing more of it? Is there anything in your financial giving that Jesus would say did not come out of your abundance but came actually out of your need that represented a weighty kind of sacrifice? That teaching, this spirit, this attitude is something that would transform the Christian church. That's why, as short as this story is, I now want you to see how one of the best and first disciples of Jesus taught giving to actual ordinary churches like ours. Look over with me in 1 Corinthians 16, and I want you to see quite practically what this looks like in the life of a local church. This is obviously a letter, a letter of the Apostle Paul. He is writing to, church, to a Christian church that began in the ancient pagan city of Corinth. And here's the setting. The Christians in Jerusalem have being, are being crushed by persecution. They have been impoverished. So as the gospel spread out, as Jesus promised, from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, as prosperous Roman provinces became Christians, they knew that the gospel they heard started back in Jerusalem. And though they enjoyed a great deal of freedom, and many of them were quite prosperous, their Jewish brothers back in Jerusalem who had first heard the gospel and first sent the gospel, they're getting crushed financially. So churches across the pagan world, everywhere there were churches, started collecting an offering to send back to Jerusalem. And Paul writes in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he explains to the Corinthian church what their giving should look like. Here's the first principle, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read to you from 
the bulletin. I like the way the, new, uh, the NIV translated this for clarity. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2 says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Those are those poor Christians in Jerusalem I was telling you about. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Galatia is another Roman province nearby. About the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Okay? So let's just study the Bible a little bit. When is, according to Paul, his practical instructions... What was the ordinary day of giving for Christians, according to this verse we just read? First day of the week. What day of the week is that? Sunday, when they gathered. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Paul will later explain in the second letter that giving is according to what someone has, not according to what they don't have. In other words, as God prospers you, Depending on how that week went, remember most people in the ancient world are living day by day and week by week, as you work, as you have income, set it aside, bring it with you, give it together on the first day of the week so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. A very simple principle based on the teaching of Jesus and based on the explicit instruction of the epistles. Christian, give first. As soon as you have income, set a portion of it aside that is dedicated to the Lord, that it will strengthen the church, that will bring relief to the poor, that will help share the gospel. Give first. The way many people give who never experience truly the grace of giving, never move anywhere near what Jesus here is commending, which is sacrificial giving. They make income, they immediately pay their bills. They maybe pay down some debt, and then at the last moment, if they have anything left, and if it occurs to them, if they feel like that week they can spare, they might give a little bit first. This is never the biblical idea. I can't prove it, but I've got a pretty good idea that Paul's instruction, very practical for the Corinthian church, was actually based on his Bible, the Hebrew Bible, what you and I call the Old Testament. Listen to how Proverbs taught, wisely taught Israel to give. I'm reading from Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. In other words, when you have wealth, when you have income, honor the Lord with it. Do it, Proverbs says, from the first fruits of all your crops. It's an agrarian society. The first fruits was the first and the best part of the crop. That goes all the way back to the first offerings ever mentioned, all the way back into Genesis. Nobody was giving online. Few people were giving cash. They were living day to day off the land, and they were setting aside a part of the crop as soon as it came in. Listen to Proverbs. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. Christian, if you want to give in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, give to Him first. And the Corinthians didn't do it. I know that because he wrote, Paul wrote them two letters. 
1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 is just the barest, quickest reminder and a very practical, here's how to do it, here's how all the churches you know are giving. Just set it aside in keeping with your income. Give it when you come to church. When I come, we'll collect it all at once. We won't be running around chasing people saying, what can you give right now? They didn't listen, and I know that because he wrote them 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote them two verses to teach them how to give. In 2 Corinthians, because apparently they had delayed their giving for a year, Paul didn't write them two verses, he wrote them two chapters. If you want to learn about Christian giving, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's the same topic. He's going deeper. It's doctrinal. It's gone beyond, oh, they just need a little organization and a quick little reminder. They don't actually want to give. They said they would, but they didn't. So here's two full chapters. And I just want to show you three verses of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, because we live in the 21st century, the words sowing and reaping might be lost to our understanding, because we live in the suburbs. I mean, look at this, folks. It's concrete and asphalt and paint everywhere you look. We're well beyond, most of us have no idea of reaping and sowing. We might have a little aloe vera plant growing on the counter at home, okay? <laughs> I know this is true because my wife took a group of junior hires on a field trip, and one of the young girls was shocked to learn that hamburger came from cows. She was absolutely devastated to learn that her In-N-Out burger, which she so loved, had come from an animal she could see in the field. So I just want to be clear. Reaping and sowing, let's use terms that are a little more in use for us. Sowing would be planting, and reaping would be harvesting. Let's read it that way. The point is this, whoever plants sparingly, whoever plants a little, will also harvest a little. Whoever plants bountifully, whoever plants generously, will also harvest bountifully. What's Paul's idea here? He is admonishing the Corinthians to not only give first, that was in the first letter, now he's telling them, give generously. The amount of your giving has a direct impact. Follow me on this. The point of giving generously is this, if you plant more, you'll have a bigger harvest. That just makes sense. If you have five acres and you only plant in two of them, you can only expect to harvest in two of those acres. Now, please don't miss this. What Paul is primarily talking here is not prosperity for the giver, but the effect that their giving will make. The harvest here is help for others, not prosperity for the giver want to be really clear about this because this is the verse that prosperity preachers twist the most. Here's what that sounds like. The prosperity preacher will say, you send me a hundred dollars and God will send you a thousand back. And he will make assurances and give guarantees that scripture nowhere makes. 
And if you go to the parking lot where those rallies, where those kinds of church services, those kinds of conferences are held, what you'll almost invariably find is that the parking lot where the preachers have parked it has very, very nice cars and the attendees, not so much. And people are there in pursuit of a prosperity that God has not promised. What Paul is saying here is actually quite simple. The more you give, the more we'll be able to help. When you give generously, we will be able to help more of the poor Christians back in Jerusalem. I'm going to show you God. That's not entirely outside of Paul's thought. He is going a few verses to assure the giver, now that you've given, I can promise you that God will take care of you. But God is not a glorified vending machine where he is submitted as some preachers twist the word of God to say, if you do or give or say certain things, God is now obligated. God is under the law of giving himself and he must do what you, what I'm telling you he's going to do because you've obligated him. A simple truth that God has promised always to provide and God will be no person's debtor can be twisted into making giving something that God himself never says about it. The truth is the harvest here is help for other people, not necessarily prosperity for the giver. Here's a very simple example. At Christmas time, I invited you to join me in giving and to give at Christmas time $20,000 toward our missionaries. Do you remember what you gave instead? We challenged ourselves to give 20. You gave 60. You tripled that modest goal. Well, it's very simple. We supported more church planters, we brought more relief to the poor. We fed Christians in the Middle East who were literally at the point of starvation. We were able to send them money that otherwise would not have gone overseas because you gave generously. A greater harvest is being received around the world everywhere those gifts went because a greater planting, a greater sacrifice was made. In verse 7, Paul gets down to the heart of the matter. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. In fact, if you have your, your bulletin or you're using the app, I'd love for you to read this verse with me. And I just got to tell you, the Bible reading in the 9 o'clock service was incredibly disheartening, okay? I, I, I don't know, it's probably me, it always is, uh, but nobody was too enthusiastic about reading the Bible this morning together. Let's try it and, and do a, see what we can do at the 1030 service. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 says this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Listen to the grace of Christian giving. Each one must give, Paul says, as he has decided in his heart. Don't give reluctantly. Don't give under compulsion because, and this is a stunning phrase in the Bible, God loves a cheerful giver. There aren't too many places in the Bible where you were told what God loves. That phrase appears a precious few times, and each one of them is massively important. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And here, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, why would that be? 
Why would the God who owns everything, who has need of nothing, why would a God who exists by himself and for himself, who has need of nothing and no one, why would the great, merciful, loving heart of God love an ordinary person with little to give, who can only give what God gave them first, why would God love a cheerful giver? That's not a rhetorical question. I want you to think about it. Why would Scripture, of the few things it tells us about God, because if you think about it, this is not much to know about an infinite and eternal God. There's a lot here. There's great depth here. It's all true, but God has not chosen to tell us perhaps nearly as much as we would like to know, and we will enjoy in heaven knowing Him more and more day by day. That's one of the great attractions of heaven. Your knowledge for the Lord and your love of the Lord will grow, I'm convinced, as eternity rolls on. But of all the things that God told you about Himself, He specifically said He loves a cheerful giver. Why? He doesn't need it. Why does He care about the widow's microscopic offering? Why in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 does He tell of poor believers who literally wrote their name in church history by giving beyond their means out of deep poverty themselves. For this reason, God loves a cheerful giver for the same reason that parents love when their children finally become generous themselves. You cannot command generosity. You can get money out of people, but you cannot command it. You must cultivate it. Generosity can only and always come from a free and loving heart. That's why as my boys now are full-grown men, one of them's far from home, living his own life, earning his own money. As they grow into men and they start earning real money for themselves, some of the things I keep in my office I cherish more than ever because they are their first childlike gifts that they willingly gave to me. If you look in my office, you're going to see a painted rock there. And I love that painted rock. It's a rock that God made with a little bit of paint that my kid slapped on it and two googly eyes looking back at me. And I love that thing. It's monetarily unimportant to anybody else that wasn't in our family. They would consider it just a trivial piece of child made trash. But to me, it's a treasure because I can still remember the look on that little boy's face when he brought it to me. He made it. He was proud of it. He wanted me to have it. And all these years later, now that he's a grown man, I treasure it because it came from a generous heart. That little rock means more to me than a big gift card with a lot of money on it would mean to me now from my grown sons because it came out of their cheerfulness. They wanted to Please me. They wanted to see if they could get me to smile. In the same way, your heavenly Father is commanding you and teaching you to give, both in the epistles and in the gospels. Jesus spoke a terrible parable, speaking of a rich man in the same gospel of Luke who piled it all up for himself and then died and heard from God, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. And then he turned to the crowd and said, this is what it will be like for everyone who is not generous toward God. 
Yes, God wants your generosity. He commands your generosity, but he cannot compel it. It must come from you. So in the same way that parents are delighted by the generosity of their children, your heavenly Father is delighted when your faith and love in him has grown enough that you are generously and sacrificially giving your money away. Because, folks, we're worshiping God, we're not paying a bill. When you give, it's not like writing the rent check. It is genuine, trusting, loving worship. And the final verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Here is a reassurance from your heavenly Father who will not be outgiven, who has not promised to make you wealthy, but he has promised to give you what you need. You can take that to the bank. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, the very next verse. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's a short sentence, but it's dense. Let me break it down for you. God, now that you've given, Paul says, you're going to give generously, hoping to do the most good. You're going to finally bring your offering with you as God prospers you. According to what you have decided in your heart under no obligation whatsoever, you're going to give cheerfully to the Lord. And now God will step in and he is able to make all grace abound to you. In other words, God is is able to open up to you all kinds of undeserved gracious gifts so that you will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. Notice the all, the all the alls. What Paul is promising here is that God who owns everything, who has every grace for you, can arrange circumstances so that you have everything you need at all times, so that you in turn may abound in every good work. Here's the principle. You give expectantly. This is the adventure of giving I've tried to teach to my own sons and I've tried to share with you whenever giving comes up in the Bible. If you will give in loving obedience to God, you will discover day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, that God will not be outgiven and that your Father has endless ways to provide for you. Aside from their salvation and their growth in godliness, when it comes to a simple, daily, weekly, practical habit, you can ask my sons, what I have most pleaded with them about and insisted upon is that they learn to be generous and gracious givers. I don't know if they are. That is between them and the Lord. But I want them to enter into this expectation that the God who has everything is able to make all grace abound to them so that they and I and their mother and I will have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that we can abound in every kind of good work. Please don't misunderstand me. There is no shame or guilt in Scripture and there is no shame or guilt in this sermon. Your heavenly Father who owns everything, who has your best interest at heart who loves you so much he gave you his own son he actually knows how finances work 
And he knows that if you will lovingly enter into this relationship with him and begin to trust him, you can do so with the assurance that he will provide for you. The principle here is as we give, God grows us. You see, giving is something that you can endlessly get better at. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says this, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, this must have been a very strong church indeed. We know they were contentious, but they must have had resources. They must have had many spiritual gifts. There must have also been knowledgeable Christians there. Paul says you excel in everything. You excel in faith, you excel in speech, you excel in knowledge, you are completely earnest, you have the love that we started, that we sparked in you. Look at the last phrase, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. In other words, Paul says, make sure that you're excellent givers. Every Christian who comes and becomes a Christian and begins as a disciple of Jesus begins somewhere. For most Christians, just as it is with most children, giving comes late. For most people on earth and for most disciples of Jesus, Jesus is, giving is not an immediate and generous thing. It is something that we have to learn to trust Jesus with. But Paul says, make sure you get good at it. You're good at everything else. Make sure that you excel in the grace of giving. Why? Because Jesus isn't counting your money. He's weighing your sacrifice. What Jesus wants to develop in the heart of his disciples is in what for many people is the last fortress to fall under his, leaders, under his lordship. We will say to the Lord, I have trusted you with my, the forgiveness of my sin. I will also trust you with the provision for my life. I'm here to tell you, folks, from the authority of Scripture, from the countless testimonies of the poor Christians I grew up with, who will never be prosperous on this earth, but learn to take Jesus in places like Mexico and Cuba and Nicaragua and Costa Rica and Peru. I have met countless Christians who learn to take Jesus at His word and say, if He loves me this much and my Father is in charge of everything and owns everything, I will give all that I can. I will myself be generous and trust Him to take care of me. He has never disappointed anyone who ever trusted Him with anything. He's not counting your money. He's just weighing your sacrifice. Let's pray together. I told you in the beginning, Jesus can't change the person you're pretending to be. So I'm going to be quiet now, and I just want you, I want to invite you to have the Lord sit beside you and examine this specific area of your life. He owns everything. He can direct you in anything. Just open up this area, the area of your money, of your giving, of your trust in Him, and ask Him whether you're really trusting Him to the point of being called sacrifice. Just start where you are. Take those first steps. Put him in charge. Try for a season not to trust your own way and figure it out. Trust that he knows best. And that even if it doesn't make financial sense to you, 
the God who's in charge of everything, who loved you so much He gave His life on the cross for you. He can guide and provide and save you even in these ordinary, earthly, financial matters. Jesus, we invite you to search our hearts. The only heart I'll can truly answer for is my own. Reassure, Lord, your disciples. Some of us, Lord, have hardly anything at all. Others have been very, very blessed with earthly wealth. You're not impressed with any of it. You love the poor and the wealthy alike. We can't impress you with anything we, we give you. The amount does not impress you because you own it all. But you do love cheerful givers. You are moved to memorialize the insignificant financial gift of a poor woman who gave all she had left. So teach us to give. Take the disciples who have trusted you with everything else but not this. Take them into their first step toward generosity. Teach the others, Lord, who are very regular and faithful givers. Teach us to go beyond regularity and move into the realm of sacrifice, of impact, of helping and doing all that we can with the money and the time we have left. Thank you, Lord, that together we can love you and trust you and serve your purpose in this world. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Folks, at the end of every service, I'm remiss usually in mentioning it, but at the end of every service, underneath this balcony, uh, underneath this uh, canopy, rather, where it says kids check in, there's always going to be a few people from the church as well as a pastor waiting there to pray for you. The invitation is permanent. I assume you know this, but I sometimes don't communicate very well. As this pandemic drags on, as we continue to just suffer stress, anxiety, losses of all kinds, we're family. We're here for you. Don't suffer in silence. If you're hurting, it, there are so many gifted, wonderful, generous, loving people here. It probably won't even be me. I'm not that much, but I am overawed every week when I hear the things that the family is doing for one another. One ordinary Christian heard of the suffering of another, and they rushed to help them, and how God has moved. And Just get involved in that body life. Trust the Lord and trust the body enough to let us know how you're really doing. Don't suffer in silence. If you need prayer, there's people that would love to pray for you right over there. If you need counsel, if you just need to be heard, please let me know. I'll be around after the service. We want to help you in the name of Jesus. Lord, dismiss us in your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the just the prayer movement you're sparking around our church, various prayer uh, meetings that we'll have this week. Lord, and these who will be available after the service to pray, may we bear one another's burdens, Lord, and so fulfill your law, the law of Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. God bless you, folks. Love you. Bye-bye.